Part twenty of The Secret of Everyday Things by Jean Henri Fabre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter fifty seven Germs. When a sunbeam penetrates the twilight of a darkened room, its course is defined by a straight shaft in which innumerable corpuscles, rendered visible by the bright illumination, are seen whirling and eddying in constant though gentle motion. Outside of this shaft, the air, though it appears to us perfectly limpid, is laden in the same degree with similar particles of dust. On account of their smallness, these atmospheric impurities escape detection, but let a ray of sunshine illuminate them and turn each one into a point of light, and straightway they become visible, at any rate the largest ones. Others, and these form the greater number, defy the scrutiny of the sharpest eye even in a ray of light. Now, what are these atoms, visible and invisible? They are made up of an inextricable mixture of a little of everything. There are mineral particles raised from the ground by the wind, coal dust from the smoke emitted by our stoves and fireplaces, tiny shreds of wool and cotton worn away by the friction of our clothes, minute fragments of wood from the wainscoting, and loosened particles of paint. In short, the pulverized product of all the wear and tear that goes on around us here is represented. So far there is nothing remarkable, and certainly nothing dangerous, unless in exceptional circumstances, when the atmospheric dust comes from poisonous substances. Our interest in the subject increases when we learn that there also float in the air, in prodigious multitudes, all sorts of germs of animalcules, seeds of the lowest form of vegetable life, in most instances too small to be seen without the aid of a good microscope. Let us consider the simplest case, that of mold. Everyone knows that a slice of any fruit, a melon for example, if left exposed to the air, no sooner decays than it is covered with a long silky down. This down, composed of ramified filaments standing up against one another, is a vegetable growth belonging to the same class as the mushroom. Its common name is mold. Whence comes this plant, so curious if examined closely, with its little black heads full of spores? Is it engendered by decay? That is the general belief, but let us not be deceived. Decay does not engender anything. It is not a cause, but a result. The slice of melon, in decaying, does not create the mold. On the contrary, it is the mold that induces the decay of the slice of melon, at the expense of which it develops. This lowest form of vegetable life has its origin in a germ, we may call it a seed, just as an oak has its origin in an acorn. Every living thing, animal or plant, without any exception, is derived from a previous living thing of like sort, which has furnished the germ or seed for the new life. Life is always the product of life, never of decay. Accordingly, the mold must have been sown. But by whom? or what? Evidently by the air, for air is the only thing that has come in contact with the slice of melon. The conclusion is obvious. There are in the air, floating unseen amidst the multitude of other microscopic particles, the germs of mold that induce the rotting of fruit. They are there in immense numbers, for the growth of mold is very thick. They are everywhere, for in whatever part of the house the slice of melon is left, it is attacked by mold. And finally, there are many different kinds, each one attacking the vegetable or animal substance it likes best. These germs come from former molds, 
whose invisible and innumerable seeds were thrown into the air by the bursting open of the ripened fruit of the mould almost without weight and wafted this way and that by the slight current of the air they sooner or later fall upon some body favourable to their germination a slice of melon or something else the sowing is accomplished and the plant grows held in the air and borne hither and thither by it are similar multitudes of germs representing organisms known as animalcules infinite in variety and all too minute to be seen without the aid of a microscope these animalcules are called infusoria because the simplest way to obtain them is to infuse in water any substance animal or vegetable let us put to soak in a little water a few pinches of hay chopped up fine or some bits of grass no matter which in a few days especially in the heat of summer the most curious population will be found swarming in the liquid a drop of this liquid no bigger than a pin's head shows us under the powerful eye of the microscope a startling spectacle in the ocean of this drop confined between two thin plates of glass there come and go swim and plunge and rise again by the aid of their cilia infusoria of many varieties all in unceasing motion some are flattened and oval in shape somewhat resembling a certain sea-fish the sole others are bristling globules whirling rapidly still others attached to some bit of foliage by a spiral thread present from above the shape of a bell the mouth of which fringed with cilia in rapid vibration gives the appearance of a wheel revolving swiftly then suddenly the spiral thread tightens the opening of the bell closes the cilia cease to vibrate a tiny prey has just been caught and the infusorium contracts to digest its victim at leisure let us pause here in our description of these animalcules to turn our attention to the origin of the infusoria this aquatic population having its home in water in which grass or other organic material has decayed can come only from germs brought by the air let us boil a little hay in water and pour the still hot and limpid decoction into a glass the liquid when freed from the last remnants of hay is perfectly clear with a slight yellowish tinge but behold in a few days it becomes clouded turbid examined closely under a microscope it is seen to be peopled with infusoria the germs of these animalcules were not furnished by the water and the hay used for if they contained any which might well have been the case the act of boiling would have killed them beyond resuscitation let us bear this fact well in mind as we shall soon find important applications of it no living thing even if it be in the form of a germ can withstand the temperature of boiling water plant animal egg germ seed all perish in the heat required for raising water to the boiling point our boiling hot decoction therefore did not contain anything having life if then a few days after cooling off it is found to be teeming with life these organisms can owe their origin only to the dust of the air rich in infusorial germs should any doubts remain on this point the following experiment will dispel them the infusion is poured into a glass flask the neck of which is then melted and drawn down into a fine tube the liquid is now raised to the boiling point in the body of the flask steam rises and as it escapes in a jet through the small opening of the extended neck it drives out all the air after which the flask is hermeneutically sealed by melting the tip of the neck henceforth no infusoria can by any possibility make their appearance 
for years and years this decoction of hay will remain perfectly limpid developing not the slightest cloudiness and microscopic examination will prove that the clear liquid contains nothing capable of producing life without intervention from outside but let the tip of the neck be broken and air enter and very soon the usual infusoria will appear below the infusoria are microbes smaller in size of much simpler structure and apparently belonging to the vegetable kingdom microbes are the infinitely small in living form a thousand of them placed end to end would in most instances measure scarcely a millimeter there are some that are visible only under the most powerful microscope thus examined they appear as bright points constantly trembling and of various shapes some oval or rounded others rod-shaped and still others bent or curved like a comma they are everywhere in numbers that defy counting they are in the air the water the ground in decaying matter in the bodies of animals and in our own bodies they lay claim to everything what part do these infinitesimal organisms play in the order of things they play a very important one let us give two examples an animal dies its body decays and is soon resolved into its primitive elements which are seized upon for the nourishment of growing vegetation the putrefying flesh is converted into flour fruit grain nutritive matter what agency effects this wonderful transformation it is the microbe which clears away dead matter and restores its elements to the realm of the living by developing and multiplying they induce decay which gives back to life's workshop materials otherwise unavailable for use without their intervention the work of life would be impossible because the work of death would be incomplete as another instance take grape juice in the process of fermenting and becoming wine the liquid heats as the result of its own internal activity it begins to foam and big bubbles of carbonic acid gas are formed until at last there is developed that winey flavor which succeeds to the sugary taste of the earlier stages this process is called fermentation what induces it and thus gives us wine it is a microbe the same that we find in yeast in order to get nourishment for itself and to multiply until its numbers defy computation this yeast microbe decomposes the sugar in the grape juice resolving it into alcohol which remains in the liquid and carbonic acid gas which escapes such is the secret of the making of wine beer and other fermented drinks among the various tasks performed by microbes let us henceforth remember putrefaction and fermentation these two infinitely small destroyers one of which makes alcohol out of sugar and the other reduces a dead body to dust and gas warn us that other microbes carrying on their work of demolition at the expense of our own organs may by their prodigious multitude give rise to dangerous diseases one of them in fact produces cholera that terrible epidemic the very name of which terrifies us another causes typhoid fever which every year claims thousands of victims and still others each according to its aptitude engender various ills which science is every day making known to us in increasing numbers the decay of our teeth with the extreme pain caused by it is due to a microbe the slow wasting away of a consumptive's lungs is traced to a microbe the big purple carbuncle that causes so much suffering this too is the work of a microbe enough of these tortures for the present you can see that of all our enemies the infinitely small is the most terrible microbes are everywhere we say especially where filthy conditions prevail 
whether in the air or in the water. The air in a hospital ward contains more microbes than that outside. The air of cities, where we live, piled one on another, so to speak, has far more than the air of the country. The air of low plains carries a greater number than that of the uplands. High mountain air has none at all. There, in truth, may be found the pure atmosphere so conductive to health. Water is even richer than air in microbes, especially when it is defiled with sewage. It is estimated that such water may contain various kinds of microbes and their germs to a frightful number of one hundred million per liter. Not all of these, it is safe to say, are harmful. Far from it. But in so immense a multitude there must certainly be some bad ones. Chapter 58. The Atmosphere. As we have seen, all animal and vegetable life has need of air, and air is supplied in inexhaustible volume. It forms around the earth a continuous envelope known as the atmosphere and having a thickness of at least fifteen leagues. It is a veritable ocean of air, but an ocean without shores, an ocean holding in its lowest depths all that lives and moves upon this earth of ours. In its upper reaches it extends far beyond the loftiest mountain peaks and occupies regions of space that no bird in its most daring flight has ever visited, and it makes its bed upon the dry land of the continents and upon the waters that encircle them, these latter constituting another ocean far heavier and denser, the abode of the aquatic population of the globe. In the daytime we see above our heads a boundless blue vault which we call the sky, but this vault is one in appearance only, owing to its seeming existence to the atmosphere. To account for the azure copula of the sky, note that substances very slightly tinged with color do not show this color until they are seen in masses of great thickness. A pane of glass looks colorless, yet if viewed edgewise it is found to be a delicate green hue. In the first position there is nothing in the thin pane to arrest the eye. In the second, the considerable body of glass presented reveals the green color. Similarly, the water in a bottle, being of small volume, appears colorless, but if we look at a great mass of water, such as a lake or the ocean, it is seen to be tinged with either green or blue. The same holds true of air. Colorless and therefore invisible, where a volume of only moderate thickness is concerned, it becomes visible and shows its delicate tint of blue if the thickness be considerably increased. Thus it is that, the enormously thick layer surrounding the earth assumes the appearance of an azure vault. Since it is matter, air must have weight, and in fact it has, a very slight weight, it is true, but more than that of many other substances. Suppose we had a hollow cube measuring one meter each way. The air contained in this cube would weigh one kilometer and three hundred grams. A like volume of water weighs one thousand kilograms, or seven hundred and sixty-nine times as much, it is in the atmosphere, now higher, now lower, that clouds float, and it is in the atmosphere that smoke rises and is dissipated. Why do clouds remain at a considerable height, and why does smoke rise? Because they are lighter than air. A piece of wood, if forced down to the bottom of a body of water and then released, immediately comes up again of its own accord. It does so because it is lighter than water. Exactly similar is the behavior of clouds and smoke, which are lighter than air, in the atmospheric ocean in which they are immersed. If there were no atmosphere, smoke would not leave the ground, and clouds would trail along the surface of the earth. If there were no atmosphere to offer resistance to the strokes of their wings, birds could not fly. 
to protect us from the cold we have clothing the terrestrial globe likewise has its thick blanket under which is preserved for some time the heat received from the sun during the day it has its atmosphere a cloak of air fifteen leagues thick without this protection which plays a part similar to that of our eider-down bed coverings in retaining heat the earth would undergo every night a cooling off that no living creature could withstand with any diminution in thickness of this envelope of air there is a corresponding decrease in the protection it furnishes just as is the case in respect to the clothes we wear hence it is found that the cold increases rapidly in the upper regions of the atmosphere because the protecting covering is thinner in proportion to the depth of the atmosphere below thus we understand why very high mountains are covered with snow the year round not even excepting summer their summits less protected by the atmospheric blanket than the surrounding plains are subjected to a more rigorous cooling off at night a considerable mass of cotton may be compressed in the hands until it becomes a small ball in like manner air is compressible it becomes denser and occupies less space in proportion to the pressure exerted upon it with this truth in mind let us consider the atmospheric envelope in its entire thickness the next layer to the ground bears the weight of all that is above it sustains the greatest pressure and therefore volume for volume is the richest in matter just as the most compact ball of cotton is the one containing the most of that material without entering into further details we see that the atmosphere becomes less and less dense as we ascend because it has less and less of superincumbent atmosphere to support living at the bottom of this atmospheric ocean we breathe its low layers the air of which denser than elsewhere meets the needs of our lungs if we ascend three or four thousand meters we find the air thinner and respiration difficult and inadequate higher still we experience something worse than discomfort we face very serious danger finally at a height not really tremendous in itself strength fails the mind wanders and sudden faintness supervenes followed by death though life ceases for lack of sufficient air the atmosphere is still there its upper layers extending far beyond the elevation here referred to nevertheless it has not the degree of density required for sustaining life only in the lower layers of the atmosphere then is the air suitable for breathing at a greater height all life ceases of course no bird mounts to those desert spaces nor in fact would its wings find there a sufficiently resistant atmosphere to admit of flying freezing cold prostrating physical discomfort and at last sudden death these await the daring adventurer who attempts to scale the vault of heaven let us then stay below in the lowest depths of the atmosphere the only abode suited to our needs and if we are seized with a desire to know more in detail what goes on up yonder let us be content to hear the report of those audacious explorers who have penetrated the upper regions of the atmosphere a balloon ascends to heights unattainable by the loftiest mountain peaks the enormous globe of woven fabric is inflated with a gas called hydrogen like ordinary air in its invisibility but far rarer and lighter weighing only a hundred grams to the cubic meter or one thirteenth as much as air thus rendered buoyant by this tenuous gas the balloon ascends because its total weight is far less than that of the like volume of atmospheric air it carries heavy weights very heavy weights it is true notably the aeronaut the one who makes the aerial voyage but it rises in spite of this how is it to be explained it is very simple 
recall once more the piece of wood forced to the bottom of a body of water and rising of its own accord as soon as released a piece of lead would not have acted thus because lead is heavier than water but with outside help it will rise readily enough attach it to a piece of wood or better of cork making sure that the piece is large enough and the whole will return to the surface after being forced down into the water and then released the wood or cork being lighter than lead will pull up the latter with it as it rises exactly so does the balloon conduct itself the very light gas inflating it carries aloft as it ascends the heavy objects in the car or the wicker basket suspended from the gas bag when he wishes to come down again the aeronaut opens a valve by pulling a cord hanging within reach of his hand a little hydrogen escapes and ordinary air takes its place whereupon the balloon rendered so much the heavier begins to descend slowly or rapidly according to the amount of gas discharged with this explanation of the principles governing the balloon's ascent and descent let us turn to the narrative of an english scientist james glacier who in september of the year eighteen sixty two attained the greatest elevation yet reached by man we left the earth he says at one o'clock in the afternoon in a mild temperature ten minutes later we were floating in a dense cloud which shrouded us in impenetrable gloom after passing out of this layer of fog the balloon rose to a region flooded with light the brilliant sunshine giving to the sky an extraordinarily vivid tint of blue above our heads we had nothing but the azure of the firmament under our feet lay a widely extended surface of clouds arranged in imitation of hills mountain chains and isolated peaks all of resplendent whiteness one might have mistaken it for a mountain scene covered with snow of incomparable purity as we ascended we caught momentary glimpses of the earth through occasional openings in the clouds in twenty-five minutes the balloon had carried us up four thousand eight hundred meters which is very nearly the height of mont blanc the loftiest mountain peak of europe a like ascent on foot would have cost us several days of extremely wearisome climbing the temperature had by this time fallen very low and ice was forming on the balloon another upward spurt raised us to the height of eight thousand meters where the severest winter cold prevails and still we continued to ascend when we had reached an elevation of eleven thousand meters or almost a league beyond the highest mountain in the world my assistant coxwell noticed that the valve cord was entangled in the rigging of the balloon and he climbed up to disengage it just then my right arm became suddenly paralyzed i tried to use my left but it too was paralyzed they both refused to obey my will i then attempted to move my body but with so little success that i seemed to have no longer any body at all i essayed at last to read the marks on the instruments but my head fell over inert on my shoulder i had my back against the edge of the car and in this position i looked up at coxwell who was engaged in disentangling the valve cord i tried to speak to him but could not utter a sound finally thick darkness overcame me my eyesight having in its turn become paralyzed nevertheless i was still perfectly conscious i thought i needed air and that i should die unless we very soon managed to descend with that i lost consciousness just as if i had suddenly fallen asleep footnote the paragraphs obstinately quoted from glacier's narrative are in reality a very free paraphrase much abridged for the author's full account see his travels in the air part one chapter three translator End footnote. a minute more of this swooning fit and it would have been all over with glacier coxwell climbed up into the cordage amid long icicles hanging from the balloon 
he hardly had time to free the valve cord the extreme cold had seized him and his hands benumbed and blue refused to do their office he had to descend into the basket by clinging to the ropes with his elbows seeing glacier lying motionless on his back coxwell at first thought his companion was resting and he spoke to him but received no reply the prostrate man's silence indicated that he had fainted coxwell then undertook to succor him but paralysis and insensibility were fast overcoming the assistant also and he could not drag himself to the dying man's side whereupon he at last became convinced that they must descend without delay if they were not both to perish in very few minutes fortunately the valve cord hung within his reach but being unable to grasp it with his hands benumbed as they were with cold he seized it between his teeth and after a few tugs succeeded in opening the valve immediately the balloon began to descend before long in an atmosphere less cold and less rarefied glacier recovered consciousness and gave his attention to the frozen hands of his companion they regained the earth safe and sound both men but with no desire for further ascents of a like perilous nature far more serious was the issue in the case of three french aeronauts who some years later wishing to add to our knowledge of atmospheric conditions made an equally daring ascent when their balloon came down again two of the rash explorers were dead stiffened by the cold and suffocated by the insufficiency of the upper air while the third saved as by a miracle was at his last gasp knowledge is sometimes bought very dearly science has its heroes and martyrs chapter fifty nine evaporation mother ambrosine had just been washing some handkerchiefs after soaping them she rinsed them in clear water and then wrung them out as dry as she could by energetic twisting and squeezing that done were they dry enough and could they be used just as they were this question uncle paul put to the children and they all agreed that the handkerchiefs were still very wet that in fact they held an amount of water exceeding their own weight what then was to be done in order to make them as dry as linen must be before it can be used you all know resumed uncle paul what mother ambrosine will do with the handkerchiefs she will hang them on a line in the sun and in a light current of air if possible if conditions are favorable if the sun is warm and a gentle breeze is blowing the handkerchiefs will soon dry then they will only have to be ironed and put away in one of the bureau drawers if the sun does not shine and it is cold with no air stirring the drying will take longer but finally sooner or later the handkerchiefs will all get dry they will lose the water they soaked up at the beginning let us take another example we will set a plate of water in the sun in summer when it is warm and clear the water will all disappear between morning and evening and the bottom of the plate will be found quite dry in winter wait a few days a few weeks perhaps according to the weather and the same result will be attained the plate will in the end become quite empty though not a single drop had escaped by leaking but is it necessary after all to have recourse to any such experiments as these will it not suffice to recall to mind what each of us has witnessed over and over again who does not know the little puddles of water the stagnant pools that collect in ruts and hollows whenever there is a fall of rain you go by when the pool is full ducks are dabbling in it and frogs croaking black tadpoles toads that are to be sun themselves on the banks their backs exposed to the noonday warmth their bellies in the tepid mud strange plants conferia as they are called display their long tufts of sticky green filaments you go by again a little later and no more ducks are dabbling no more frogs croaking no more tadpoles frisking no more confervia showing their verdure all have vanished the pool is dry 
Doubtless the soil has drunk up, little by little, at least a part of the stagnant sheet of water where the toad's black family was disporting itself, and where the little ducks came wading in single file to take their first lessons in swimming. But in many cases the slow infiltration of the water into the ground cannot account for the pool's disappearance. It may be that the bottom of the natural basin in which the rainwater has collected is formed of compact earth, of clay, for example, which is absolutely impervious to water, or it may be the bottom is of solid rock, which, by its very nature, allows not the slightest infiltration. How, then, has the pool disappeared? What has become of the water it contained, if the earth has not drunk it up? There were, perhaps, thousands of litres, and now it is all gone. A thirsty calfinch would not find enough water there to wet his throat. What, too, became of the plateful of water set in the sun, and the moisture in the linen washed by Mother Ambrosine? To find the answer to this question, which will lead us farther than you think, it is enough to recall what happens when a potful of water is put on the fire. The liquid first gets warm, and then begins to boil, while from the pot there burst turbulent jets of what look like white smoke, hot and damp, and known to everyone as steam. Now, this white smoke, this steam, is water, nothing but water, yet water under another form, water that, instead of running or dripping, expands in the air, floating there as light and as thin as the air itself, and becomes dissipated until not a particle of it is visible. Watch puff of steam coming out of the pot. You can see plainly enough the jet of white vapor at the mouth of the vessel, but a little higher up you see nothing whatever, the white puff having become dissipated in the air, and being henceforth lost to sight. We no longer see the steam, nevertheless it still exists, whether it has been dispersed through the room, whence it will escape by the doors and windows, or has been carried up the chimney by the current of air ascending from the fireplace. Thus the pot loses its contents through its mouth, little by little it empties itself from above, it yields its water to the atmosphere under the form of vapour, the hotter the fire, the more rapid the loss. Always losing in this way, and receiving nothing, the pot must sooner or later become dry. If the cook does not watch it, and, before it is too late, replace the water that has boiled away, the vegetables she has just put in, to cook, will burn. What are we to conclude from this instance of the pot of water on the fire? This. The heat reduces water to vapor, or, in other words, to something as thin and invisible as air itself. I insist on this word invisible because, note this well, the white smoke we distinctly see rising from the pot is not yet real vapor. Let us call it, if you like, imperfect vapor, or visible vapor, or mist. But when the white smoke has been dissipated in the air and becomes so thin and limpid that the eye can no longer detect it, then it is real vapor. What the intense heat of the fire accomplishes in a short time the sun also affects, but more slowly. It is the sun's heat, then, that dries up the pool by changing its water into vapor. It is the sun's heat that dries the plate by reducing its contents to vapor. It is the sun's heat that dries the linen hung on the line by converting the moisture it holds into vapor. Vapor from the pool, from the plate, from the linen, from the boiling pot, all goes into the air and floats there invisible, driven hither and thither by the least puff of wind. The greater the heat, the more rapid the transformation of water into vapor, and also the greater the air's capacity for receiving this charge of invisible moisture. That is why the duck pond dries up sooner in summer than in winter, 
and why the linen that dries so quickly on a hot day is very slow in drying on a cold and dull one. But whatever the temperature, air cannot receive an unlimited quantity of vapor. When it has a certain amount of it, it becomes too damp to absorb a fresh supply of moisture. A perfectly dry sponge will readily drink up a certain quantity of water. Already wet, it can take up only a smaller quantity, and if entirely saturated, it will take up none at all. A pile of dry sand, with its base resting in water, gradually becomes damp to the very top, and when it is thus wet through, it cannot absorb any more water. Air behaves in the same manner. In a dry state, it readily absorbs vapor. Saturated to a certain point, it will receive no more. It is a soaked sponge in its powerlessness to drink up more water. So you can easily understand why air in motion, that is to say, wind, accelerates the drying of linen and the disappearance of water in a pond. The more humid the air, the less rapidly will it receive vapor, the formation of which is thus arrested. But if the air in contact with the pond, or with wet linen, or with any sheet of water, be constantly renewed by a breeze, the damp air is succeeded by dry, which in its turn becomes charged with vapor and gives place to other air and this also carries on the drying process. Thus the transformation of water into vapor proceeds uninterruptedly. Let us sum up what we have just learned. Heat changes water into vapor, that is to say, into something light and thin, which floats in the air and becomes dissipated until it is as invisible as the air itself. This change is called evaporation. Water evaporates at any temperature, but the more rapidly, the greater the heat. End of part 20